0: Well, good morning. We're continuing in our study of the book of Romans this morning and um, we slowed down a little bit in these in these middle chapters. Uh, They're so dense regarding very important issues of the Christian life, Uh, specifically uh, here in Romans six. We are we're talking about the doctrine of sanctification. That's where the Apostle Paul has gone he has made the point, he has emphasized justification by faith alone. And um, he has moved now to show how the doctrine of sanctification, he's moved to show how our conformity to uh, the image of God in Christ, Christian obedience flows out of what he just the foundation that he just laid, justification by faith alone. He's also moved to show in this section that our sanctification, our Christ-likeness, our growth in holiness is rooted ultimately in our union with Jesus Christ. Remember the, the doctrine of the federal headship we considered a few weeks ago. There's Adam and in and, and connection with him as our representative brings, brings death and, and sin and destruction. But, but in Christ, our federal head, comes life and righteousness, and sanctification, and holiness. We considered last week that that through faith, or justification, symbolized in our baptism, we have died with Christ to sin, and we've been raised with Him to new life. This is union with Christ. This is the, the, the sanctification that flows out of union with Christ In our justification. So, remember just last week our conclusion as we wrapped up the first five verses. Um, The gospel, the thesis of this epistle, Paul begins and ends the book of Romans with this statement. The gospel is revealed, it came to, to bring about the obedience of the faith. And then the thesis statement, really the explicit thesis statement of the entire book, Romans 1, 16 and 17, the gospel carries with it the power of God unto salvation. So this power of God in this section is not just for our justification, but it's also for our sanctification. This power of God saves us not only from sin's penalty, but it also saves us from sin's power. We concluded by considering, you know, we were saved to obey. And it is impossible for a genuine believer not to follow Christ in obedience, not to walk in newness of life. Uh, So that's where we came from. Um, Today, uh, some of the big questions that Paul is going to answer in this section, uh, maybe are summarized in this way. Why is it impossible for a Christian to live in sin? And remember, we, we really broke down last week what it means, what Paul means by live in sin. Unrepentant, habitual, comfortable living in a state of, um, of sin, of unrighteousness. Why is it impossible for a Christian to live in such a way? What actually breaks the power of sin? How does the reality of being dead to sin now instruct our lives? So that's an abstract truth in some sense. We're dead to sin. How does that change our lives? And what is the incentive now for Christian living since we are, as Paul concludes this section, not under law, but under grace? Okay, we're not under the law, Why do we seek to obey it? What's the incentive for obeying it? These are some of the questions that he's going to answer in this section. And really, to to kind of give you a thesis here, my best attempt at it, uh, just to give you a little taste of what we're going to see. Our justification by faith is a life-giving verdict whereby the power of Christ's resurrection, the new creation has dawned in our hearts, which leads us to walk in newness of life. And we're called to, to strive to know this justification, this life-changing, life-giving verdict, with an ever deeper understanding, and to cooperate, to live in accordance with who we are in Him. Yeah, I know, that's a lot. So we're, we'll unpack that. Uh, but that's just a little taste of, of, of where we're going. So, uh, let's begin, uh, of course, by... Jumping in where we left off, reading Romans 5, excuse me, 6, 5 through 11, which is our focus today, Um, would someone please volunteer and read that for us loud and clear? Thank you. Thank you. So here we get an elaboration of his point, and then he moves toward applying it at the end. Here's what you need to do now in light of this reality. So that's kind of um, the the structure. And of course, in verse uh, 12 uh, through 14, he's going to apply it even more, and we will get there as well. Uh, But I want you to notice a couple of things as we jump in. Um, First, notice that the four in verse 5 is an elaboration on the previous point. For, if we have been united with Him. Alright, he just declared that union with Christ. So he's elaborating on this. For, if we have been united with Him. He's talking about the death of Christ and the resurrection. What's his point in this? Um, His point is, you can't just say you've died with Christ as if my sins are forgiven. For if you died with Christ, which means your sins are forgiven, then you have also been raised with Christ to newness of life. His point here is that they go together. And I point that out because, you know, um, I guess this demonstrates the folly of, of antinomianism. That "...our sins are forgiven, therefore it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter whether um, I walk in obedience or not." This verse doesn't allow that. They, They go together. If we've been united with Him in His death, if your sins are forgiven, then you're also united with Him in His resurrection." Which means newness of life. So it goes on in verse six, He says, "We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like His." I't I want to point out the future tense. It doesn't no, um, note, denote something that is yet to occur. We shall certainly be. Rather, he's emphasizing the certainty. This is how it's, uh, the the text, uh, the, the grammar is used here in this respect. The certainty of Christ's resurrection power in our union with Him. It is, again, dying with Him to sin and walking in newness of life are inseparable. They, they go together. They're part of one truth. Both parts of one truth. So the new convert, the newly baptized, will certainly produce the fruit of a regenerate heart. If there is no newness of life, there is no union with Christ, there is no dying to sin, which means, um, uh, or in a sense, you, your sins aren't forgiven, there's no genuine baptism that's taken place, there's no gen- regeneration, no new life. So this raises a question. pose it to you this way: What, at the root of these things, leads to newness of life? New creation. Are dying with Him and raising with Him. With him, and raising with him. Yes. And, and and I ask the question this way because we might say, what leads to it? Our, our own efforts at repentance? Our self-discipline? Our moral renewal? You know, it can be easy to frame the power of Christian living in these in, in this way. It can be common to speak of them in this way. Of course, the Lord uses our repentance. The Lord uses our discipline and uh, our, our attempts at moral uh, renewal. But I, I point this out just simply because I want you to see, ultimately, it's the result of the power of Christ's resurrection. That's what breaks the power of sin. So if we don't understand our union with Christ in His resurrection, if we don't understand what, this, what He has done, what this means, if we don't understand how to, um, for lack of a better term, um, commune with Him to strengthen this union and all of our other efforts at moral renewal, Newness of life are going to be in vain. Sanctification goes back. We've considered this already. It's a work of God. The power for sanctification is found in Him, not in us. Our catechism says this quite explicitly. It is a work of God's grace. Sanctification, our obedience, is not just a matter of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and getting serious about the gospel or about Christian life. Ultimately, it flows out of our union and the power for such lies in Him. So, another question here. He says in verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Let me ask you this. What does our old self refer to? Most people, a lot of people, read this and assume that the old self refers to the dead, sinful, corrupt us. As if salvation has brought a new me. A new creation, which of course it has. We'll consider that in just a moment. Is this Paul's point? Maybe it would be a better way of putting it. I say this because so often we can talk about salvation as Turning over a new leaf. That's the old me. Now is the new me. And that's true. Absolutely it's true. Again, we'll consider this in just a moment. Um, I have found, though, that with new converts, typically there is a, a season of, of tremendous change and growth Uh, But six months, eight months, a year, year and a half later, sometimes they can find themselves falling back into some of the old patterns of their old life. And there can be a great confusion and frustration. Maybe I wasn't really converted. Maybe I'm not really different than I was before. Why am I still struggling with this sin? Why am I still following in these patterns? Why are these things still attractive to me? And it can cause um, great distress, discomfort, questioning of salvation. We'll consider new creation in just a moment, but for now, I want you to note the Greek term, the Greek actually reads our old man, our father, our old man, not our old self. Here I want you to see the best answer for old man refers to our former existence in Adam. Which is where he just came from. We know that our old Adam, our old man, our father Adam, was crucified with Christ. Because this is getting at what breaks the legal power of sin. We're no longer united to Adam now that we are in Christ. Thus, we are no longer under the enslavement to sin that is found in him and in that covenantal union. If you're under Adam, you receive what's in Adam. If you're under Christ, you receive what's in Christ. Paul's nailing down this point. You're united to somebody else, somebody new. The old Adam in you is crucified. And that was done so that now you can walk in newness of life. So that you can be sanctified. So that you can turn over a new leaf. So that you can live in accordance with a new creation. It's not that you're you're zapped in a moment. Now you're a, a new self. As if you're not going to fall back into those habits again. Uh, We'll we'll see at the end of the chapter, excuse me, at the end of this this passage, he gives some commands about not letting sin reign in your mortal body. That wouldn't make sense if your old self was just done with already. Like old you. That makes sense? Right? He wouldn't have to tell you to not let sin reign if you're old self and now you're just entirely new. Now we are new. That's why the tension here. I don't want to overstate my case. But, But this is key. This is helpful in understanding the doctrine of sanctification and the progress of it in the Christian life. And the fact that it is an ongoing work. And oftentimes it is slow. It is painful. It takes a long time to see clear fruit. And yet it inevitably follows justification by faith. It is an indispensable part of our salvation, the Christian life. So let's think then now about this idea of new creation. Um, We know that we are a new creation in Christ. uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that clearly. If anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, I want to say that is a truth, but that's not Paul's point in the previous verse when he's talking about old self and new self. Rather, he moves on in verse 7 to talk about this new creation. We are a new creation, says that in verses 7 through 10. One who has died has been set free from sin. If we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. Christ is the preeminent figure of the new creation he is the model he is the uh, we are the prototype of 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 him the ultimate reality so this gets at the question of why is it impossible for a christian to live in sin it's impossible because we've died and we've been united with christ but it's also impossible because the legal power of sin has been broken as our old Adam has died. The legal power of sin. It doesn't mean it doesn't harass you. It doesn't mean it, doesn't, uh, it fails to, to, to um, influence you. But it's legal power has been broken. Put it this way. God's forensic legal declaration, Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4, that we are free from the law's condemnation, that we are forgiven and righteous in Him, severs the claims and condemnation of the law rooted in the covenant of works, so that we are now free to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not bound by the chains of the law's demands. We are not bound by the chains of do this and live. We are not bound by the chains of don't do this and die. The legal power sin, of sin has been broken. And so, in this, we're not just a new crea- uh, crea- creature, as if instantly sanctified, but we are part of the new creation. The power of the new creation, which raised Christ from the dead, is at work in us. Um, This is huge. The powers of the age to come have been poured out on us, evidenced by our faith, leading to newness of life. And this is really the focus of chapter 8, particularly. As we head in that direction, the powers of the new creation that raised Christ from the dead are at work in us. Mark? So, would you apply this to the parable of the sower and the seed that. yeah very true i no I agree with you uh, I believe it does refer those uh all of those um seeds um refer to unbelievers except for the one that bears fruit um ultimately and um jesus is is talking about how different people receive the word in different ways um but but only um you know many are called, but few are chosen and, and yes, in some sense we shall know them by their fruits but in another sense sometimes as paul says uh, sometimes um our sins go before them to judgment uh sometimes we we don't we don't really know we won't really know um until the final judgment of of um of who's genuine and who is who is hypocritical ultimately um but yeah and and i, I think uh, so I guess trying to apply that passage to this passage. Um, I mean, they're talking about two different things, Jesus and Paul here. But in some respect, um, a new creature, new creation will bear fruit. And Jesus says there, if I'm not mistaken, some 30 fold, some 60, some 90. So his point is like some, some are going to bear a lot of fruit and some are going to bear only little fruit. Um, some look like Christians, but are not. But but I'm talking about the genuine seed that, that any fruit is fruit. Any fruit represents or manifests a heart of true belief. And, um, and yeah, and that's important, too, when we think about our old self being broken, uh, 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 the, the old man being broken. Um, uh, done away with, with, died with Christ. Uh, as I mentioned already, sanctification takes a long time. And um, we can only really look at it objectively over a period of long time. Because in the short term, it can be very deceptive. Sprout up really quickly, but then wither away when, when difficulty comes. Um, so, I mean, that's good. It's a good observation. Karen? Absolutely, And we're going to return to that very thought. That's, that's very good. Absolutely. We, we, have, we have a new Lord. <laughs> we have a new ruler. We have a new king. And um, at times we fall back into the old patterns of, of, of our former way of living. Uh, John Bunyan Pilgrim's Progress illustrates that beautifully. And um, even when Apollon confronts him, he's like, Don't you remember? I'm your master. <laughs> and he's like, well... No, not anymore. I don't have to follow you anymore. You, don't, you have no claim over me anymore. Um, but, but absolutely, we're going to return to that in just a moment. So, what I want you to see, though, in this respect, at this point, in a very real sense, our death and resurrection have already taken place. In a spiritual sense, if you're in Christ, your death and your resurrection have already happened. In a spiritual sense. The death, the curse, the judgment for your sin happened at the cross. Now, your physical death simply serves to usher you into the presence of God. That final judgment that you deserve because of your sin has already happened in Christ. In the same way, your resurrection has already happened, spiritually speaking. Your spirit, your soul, has been raised. The only thing that awaits is now your body. Just as dead people are free from sin, from the constraints of their former life, so are we spiritually. You ever heard a believer say uh, before, my my dad, he's not here, my dad says this all the time, he says, one of (laughs) the... One of the, most, the things I'm most looking forward to um, in eternity is that I won't sin anymore. I won't struggle with sin anymore. I won't be tempted to sin anymore. Because he's like, 70 plus years, I'm, I'm over it. I'm done. I hate it. Well, dead people are free from sin. From the constraints of this life. I heard uh, read on Twitter the other day, don't go on Twitter, but um, I read on Twitter the other day, I, I, I was brave. Uh, somebody said we should take all the student loan debt in our nation and, and put it on one person and that's about to die. Because when you die, your, your debt's no longer, you don't have to pay them anymore, Right? And somebody responded and said, hey, buddy, I'm a pastor. I got really good news for you. (laughs) Um, Dead people are free from the constraints of this life, from the constraints of their former life. We, died in Christ, are free from the constraints, spiritually speaking, of our connection with Adam. Resurrected people enjoy the spoils of the new creation. Right? They... They they walk on streets of gold. They they enjoy communion with God. So are we as well, uh, spiritually resurrected, we enjoy the powers of the age to come, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and all the graces and comforts and blessings that that comes with. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, kindness, self-control. All of the, the fruit of the Spirit. So in Christ, the resurrection, the spiritual resurrection, has already happened. The only thing that waits is your physical resurrection at the last day. If you really want to break this down, John 5, 24-29, you can go back to like four years ago when I preached on this here. Jesus talks about the two resurrections right there. The hour has come, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of Christ, the word of the gospel, and live. Then he says, the hour is coming, and is not yet, when the dead will be, hear the voice of the living God, and be raised out of the grave. There is a spiritual and physical resurrection, but Jesus is saying, look, the spiritual has come right now. Paul is saying, you need to live in the reality that you have been raised from the dead. And that's where he goes. If all of this is true, he's just proclaimed this. What should our response then be? You must live in the reality of this because you must consider yourselves, you must reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Consider means to To count, to reckon, consider. That's supposed to say live, not life. Live in the reality of who we are as dead to sin and alive in Christ. It means to live in this knowledge that we've been justified, that we're free from sin's enslavement, that we enjoy the benefits of the new creation. In fact, we have those things at our disposal. And that these realities then are to shape our every word, our every thought, our every deed. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. He gives the analogy pulled from the Civil War and the freeing of the African slaves. He says this. Take the case of those poor slaves in the United States about a hundred years ago. They were in a condition of slavery. Then the American Civil War came, and as a result of that war, slavery was abolished in the United States. But what had actually happened? All slaves, young and old, were given their freedom, but many of the older ones who had endured long years of servitude found it very difficult to understand their new status. They heard the announcement that slavery was abolished and that they were free, but hundreds, not to say thousands, of times in their lives, their afterlives and experiences, many of them did not realize it. And when they saw their old master coming near, they began to quake and to tremble and to wonder whether they were going to be sold. And he says, you can still be a slave experientially, even when you are no longer a slave legally. Whatever you may feel, whatever your experience may be, God tells us here through His Word that if we are in Christ, we are no longer in Adam, we are no longer under the reign and rule of sin, and if I fall into sin, as I do, it is simply because I do not realize who I am. Realize it, His exhortation. Reckon it. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ. This goes back to what Karen said earlier. You have a new master. You see your old master. You tremble. You fear. Oh, I'm still under his authority and rule. Paul is saying, you're not not thinking rightly. Just a side note do you see how sound doctrine is indispensable to the Christian life? We can't just talk about doing great things for God. We first have to know the truth. We first have to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive in God, in Christ Jesus, alive to God in Christ Jesus. The grasp of the truth with the mind precedes it entering our heart and then flowing out of our lives. This is why the the, the focus and goal of the church is not necessarily um, for for us to, to lay out good works for you to do and to set up programs so that you can follow in good works and, and put you in the right circumstances to obey God, the primary focus and goal commission of the church is to make disciples, to teach them everything Christ taught. To lay forth a foundation of sound doctrine so that it flows naturally out of your lives where God has called you. Consider yourself Dead. Well, to conclude here, he then elaborates on what it kind of means to consider yourself. He expands on that just a little bit. He does just leave it there. This is in 12 through 14. Let not therefore, excuse me, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That's an imperative. You are to do this. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. You are to do this. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You are to do this. And your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace. Sin will not. Will not. That's... That's strong language. It will not have dominion over you. It's impossible for you to live under the dominion of sin. This is the classic uh, put off, put on language. What are we to put off? Don't let sin reign. Don't let it reign. You're going to fall into sin, but don't let it reign. That means deal quickly with it. That means regular confession and repentance. Repentance. Don't let it rain. When you ignore it, it rains. When you don't do anything about it, it rains. This is why corporate confession is a regular part of our liturgy. It's a regular part of worship. It's a regular part of the Christian life. Don't let it rain. Deal with it. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Members literally means your body, body parts. What you do with your body matters. This was a Sunday school series what, a few months ago, a year ago. What you do with your body matters. Your saved body and soul. How you use your hands, how you use your feet, how you use your mind and your eyes and your ears and your tongue. That matters. Don't present them as instruments of unrighteousness. That means, don't give them opportunity for unrighteousness. This is what you're put off. Don't do these things. Instead, present yourselves to God. Positively, proactively, offer yourself to Him. um, In worship, in obedience, in service. Be be active about this. Be proactive about this, I should say. Be intentional about this. Present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Your, Your body is His. Take my life and let it be. Offer it to him to be used for righteousness. Put off and put on. That's what it means to not consider yourself uh, to, to consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ. And then finally, finally, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. We've got five minutes, so uh, I'll just briefly. I wanted to ask you what does it mean not to be under law? And what does that have to do with having dominion over us? Uh, Does you are not under law mean that the law doesn't matter? That the law doesn't instruct us, that the law doesn't guide us, that the law doesn't direct us, that the law doesn't have authority over us in the Christian life? Some people believe that. You're not under law. Some people take that to mean, well, the law is dead letter. Now we live by the law of love. I've had Christians in Reformed churches tell me this before. I've heard it said, we live now by the law of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who guides us. I've had Christians in Reformed circles tell me that before. I've had people say to me before, uh, the law, when you're not under law, means the Old Testament law. Nothing in the Old Testament matters. But then they turn the New Testament into really a a harsh and cruel and uh, uh, unbending law. um, A new form of legalism. What does it mean that we are not under law? What does it mean that the dominion is broken of, of, of sin has been broken because we're not under law? Remember the context. Remember chapter seven, which we're about to get to. We are free from Adam. We are free from the covenant of works. We are free from the condemnation that is in Him. That's what it means that we're not under law. We are free from the law as a covenant. We are free from Him from it as a system of salvation it has no power over us with its threats, with its demands, with its guilt. It does not mean that we don't have to or are not called to walk in conformity to it. Two quotes here. Martin Luther. Not to be under law is to do good things and abstain from wicked wicked things Not through compulsion, being forced, but by free love and with pleasure. We walk in conformity to the law because the law reflects the righteousness of God. And we love Him and we love His righteousness. And we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to Him. Then Dr. Ryan McGraw says this, Both legalism and antinomianism share the problem that they treat the law as though its only purpose is to serve as a covenant of works designed to make men acceptable to God. Legalism treats the law as a covenant of works. I have to obey this in order to live. Antinomianism as a covenant of works. Well, now that Christ has fulfilled the covenant of works, the law doesn't matter anymore. I can throw it out. Same error. Only the gospel charts that middle path between, okay, the covenant works has been broken, and yet the law teaches me how to love my Savior. And that's what Paul's getting at. So, final, conclu- uh, final point here. What then is the power, the incentive, the motivation for obedience in the Christian life It's the gospel, not the law. Only when we break free away from works righteousness, from the guilt-producing condemnation of the law, because we'll never perfectly live up to it, only then, when we reckon ourselves dead to the law and dead to sin, is the power of sin broken, the righteousness that we have in Christ then serves to motivate us to obey the law out of love and gratitude for Him this is how the gospel gives us a new and different incentive for godly living. And it's a covenant that comes with the resurrected power. The power of God unleashed in this world. The gospel. All right. Any last questions or comments? I had to blitz through that last section. As usual. Karen.